I am so glad that uh, we are together today. It's always a great time when we can come together and worship. And I always look forward to being with you and to opening the Word of God together. I want to um, welcome those of you who are visiting today. I know you were already welcomed, but what a blessing to have you in our midst today. I hope you find here a place where even for the brief moment that we're together, you have felt the warmth of the Lord and a welcome from all of us. We're, we're glad you were able to be with us today. And then Autumn Steffens is here somewhere. Autumn, where are you at? Can you slip your hand up? Oh, there you are, way in the back. And she is uh, back visiting for a few months, and uh, I got to speak to her before the service. I know many of you would like to greet her. For those of you who are newer here, uh, Josh and Michelle were on the pastoral staff, and Josh was one of our pastors here, and uh, he is now pastoring in Missouri and doing very well, but it was such a good opportunity today to to see Autumn, and I know many of you would want to greet her uh, because of the ministry that their family had. I'm going to ask you to take your Bible to James chapter 3, and we're going to pick up the storyline that James is laying out for us where we left it. The last two times that we have been together in the book of James, we have looked at the first of two friends that God introduces to us and that James calls to our attention. You'll note, you'll remember that one of James's big ideas is that we are to avoid friendship with the world because friendship with the world is actually what? In chapter 4, friendship with the world is enmity with God. So James is laying this out. The alliances and the allegiances of a believer are incredibly important. And as we live in the little kingdoms of the world where God has placed us, we have actually been made part of the big kingdom of God, and we are to live by its values. Uh, We are to be loyal to that kingdom and its king. And the way that we do that is by living out a wholehearted, single-focused, fully trusting faith. And we have said that every Sunday that we've been together in James, and I want to keep that going. So what is it that we are supposed to do in the kingdoms of the world? We are to cultivate and display a living faith that is wholehearted, single-focused, and fully trusting. And the people that do that in the kingdoms of the world are the friends of God. And we noted uh, that James introduced us to the first two of five that he is going to speak to us about in his little letter. The first of them was Abraham. And Abraham is the example of how a person obtains friendship with God. How do you become a friend of God? And the answer is by your faith. And Abraham is going to be the example of what that faith actually looks like. It's not just a claim to faith. It's not just a faith that articulates uh, a content that is orthodox. It's actually a living faith a faith that works. And so we noted how James developed that idea in the life of Abraham. But how do we know that our living faith is actually going to work on the day when we most need it to work? How do we know that on the day when God comes to judge the world around us, that our living faith will actually result in a deliverance from that judgment? And James says, well, let me introduce you to the second friend of God. And so in chapter 2, we looked at the life of Rahab, and we noted that her faithful faith resulted in her deliverance on the day that God's judgment, God's righteous judgment, fell on her city, the city of Jericho. 
And so as we close out chapter 2, we have, we have become very aware of what James is going at. James is going at the fact that you and I have been called to live out this living faith before a dying world. But sometimes as we do that, frequently along the way, we're going to be called to explain that faith. We're going to have to articulate why we believe what we believe. People are going to want to know, what do you believe and why? What is this idea that you have a different Lord than Caesar? When you talk about this Lord that you worship and that you follow and to whom you belong, we understand the concept of Lord, but, but our Lord is Caesar. When, when you think about the idea and you start talking to us about a Savior, we understand the idea of a Savior. The idea of a savior in the Greek world or in the Roman world was that the emperor was the savior of the empire. He wasn't just the lord of the empire. He was the savior of the empire. And so when you started talking about a lord and a savior in the world where James's readers lived, everybody would have an idea of what you were talking about. And they would immediately say, well, we have a lord and we have a savior and he lives in Rome and his name is Caesar. So who is your Lord and who is your Savior? And all of a sudden, you are going to have to articulate what you believe and why you believe it. And for that to happen, your communication has to come out of a life that is credible. Your communication has to come out of a life that is credible. And in order to kind of set the stage for that issue that is going on in the lives of his readers, James is going to take the first 12 verses in chapter 3, and he is going to give you the most concentrated teaching in the New Testament on your communication, on how we communicate as believers. He is going to exhort us that one of the chief marks, if not the chief mark, one of the chief marks of spiritual maturity is how we use our mouth, how we use our tongue. It is the defining mark of our spiritual maturity, and it is a reliable gauge of the true condition of our faith. Because you and I can talk very well about our faith. We, we can articulate what we believe about Jesus. We can articulate what we believe about salvation. We, we can sit around a table and we can talk about the fact that we are saved by grace alone. We are saved through faith alone. We are saved by Christ's work alone. We can articulate all of the right things about our faith. So when James is talking about the use of our mouth, he is not talking about what we articulate about our faith. He is actually saying something else. He's talking about the fact that spiritual maturity and spiritual credibility are tied to how we use our mouth. And by the way, that's not something new. If you'll flip back to chapter 1 and look at verse 26, James has sort of set you up for this, right? He said in chapter 1, verse 26, if someone thinks he's religious, and we talked about the word religious when we were looking at that verse a number of weeks ago, and we noted that this is James's way of talking about the practice of our faith. If somebody thinks they are doing a good job practicing their faith, that's the idea of the word religious. It is the expression, it is the outward 
acting of our faith. If anybody thinks that he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is what? It's worthless. Now, I want you to notice that James does not say it's not true. He's not saying that what you articulate out of that mouth is untrue. But he is saying that what you articulate out of that mouth, when it isn't accompanied by a life that is shaped by wisdom from above, makes that life empty. It makes that profession, it makes that articulation empty. In other words, it has no weight. It has no credibility. So how we use our mouth, how we communicate is of utmost importance, not just to our own spiritual stability and maturity, but really to the whole mission that we have been given. Because if you go all the way back to James chapter 1, he reminds us that we have been gathered together by King Jesus into his kingdom. And the whole point to James is that as we are part of that big kingdom, that kingdom has not come yet in its physical expression in the world. And we live in all the little kingdoms of the world. And while we live in those little kingdoms, we are to represent, we are to articulate, and we are to advance the priorities and the values of the big kingdom of God. And to do that, we're going to need a life that is credible We're going to need a life that is mature, and key to that is the controlling of our mouth. And so that's where James is going. And so what I'd like to do this morning is I'd like to give you the flow of the passage, and then I'd like to make three points that I think uh, will help us sort of to understand where James is going. So if you just open your Bible and, and look at verses 1 through 13, and just follow along, and let's see if we can pick up the flow of what James is saying, all right? So here's the first thing that he does. He exhorts spiritually mature people to bridle their tongue. He exhorts spiritually mature people to bridle their tongue. Notice how he talks about this. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness, for we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, in other words, if anyone doesn't trip up spiritually, if anyone doesn't sin with his mouth, there's an identity here that you can pick up on. This person is perfect. You've just met a perfect man. And you say, well, there are no perfect people. Well, James is not talking about sinless perfection. Remember, he's already used that word in chapter 1. And he's used that word about you, and he's used that word about me, and he's told us that trials make us perfect. And so the word perfect in James is not talking about someone who never sins or someone who never messes up or someone who never makes a mistake. The word perfect is the word for complete, whole, healthy, mature. That's the idea. If you meet a man, James says, who has learned how to use his tongue according to the word of God, governed by the will of God, and controlled by the spirit of God, that person is a spiritually mature 
person. So that's the first big idea that James is going to talk about. And the key to controlling your life is the controlling of your mouth. The key to controlling your life is the control over your mouth. And so that's sort of the big idea that James is going to lay out. And then in verses 3 and 4, he's going to pick this idea up. He's going to say this. Now, small things have the ability, they have the power to set the direction and to control very large things. Small things have the ability to control and to direct very large things. And so he's going to introduce you to this concept by, by talking to you about a little piece of metal that we put in the mouth of a horse or a little piece, a little uh, part of a ship that directs the entire ship in the middle of a storm. And we'll come back and look at those two ideas in just a minute. But the idea there is this, that something small has the ability to set the direction and the stability for something very large. And there could be nothing larger in the Christian life than the mission God has called us to accomplish for his glory with our life. And so James is saying something very small that is positioned in your life has the ability to affect the stability of that life and the direction of that life. And that very small thing is your tongue. It is your communication how you communicate, what you communicate, when you communicate, and the effects of that communication have an outsized influence on the direction and the stability of your life as well as its opportunity to do the mission that God has called you to do in the kingdoms of this world. Because, you know, when you start reading James and you start talking about the tongue, it is such a small member in our bodies, it weighs just a few ounces. It's a, it's a little muscle that God has imprisoned behind two sets of bars. Somebody, a commentator I was reading, kind of described it that one. I thought, that's a pretty good idea. Your tongue, God, God realized that, that it has such incredible power that he put it in prison behind your teeth. And, uh, and before, you, before it gets out, you've got to get it through those bars. And so if you don't have teeth, then you're in real trouble. Right, so, so the idea here is that something small has outsized ability to impact our direction in life, our stability in life, and our direction and our stability have everything to do with the mission that God has called us to do for him in the kingdoms of this world. Small things have the ability to set the direction and stability for very big things. And then in verse 5, he's going to say it outrightly. The tongue has great power. The tongue has great power. Look at verse 5. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. We, we saw that word boast earlier in James chapter 2 where mercy triumphs over judgment. That's the same idea. Mercy boasts over judgment. The idea there is not so much an arrogant boasting, it's the idea that there is something that, that literally overshadows everything else. And the tongue is that in our body. The tongue boasts of great things. And so the big question is, who controls the tongue? Who controls the tongue? That's where James is going here. The ship 
is kept on, on its course in the midst of a storm because somebody is controlling the rudder. A horse is set on its direction and it is made useful because somebody is controlling the bit. And your tongue is like that. Your tongue has the ability to shape your life. It has the ability to shape the mission God has called you to do. It has everything to do with your spiritual maturity. It has everything to do with your spiritual stability. It has the ability to do great good, and it also has the ability to do great damage. So who is controlling your tongue? And you can see in verse 8, where he's going. Look at verse 7. For every kind of beast and bird and reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. Go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. The very first thing that God said to Adam and to Eve was, you are to go and you are to subdue the earth. And James is recognizing that there is not an animal on the earth who has not been subdued. That's the idea of tame. It's not the idea of you taking your dog and teaching your dog a trick. We, we have two dogs in our house, and there's a certain person in our house who is a dog whisperer. And this person can make those dogs do anything. And then I come along thinking, oh, this is great. And I try to get the dog to do that, and nothing happens or nothing good happens. And so the idea, when we think of the word tame, we're thinking about a dog that can do tricks, or a bird that can talk, or a parrot that learns some words. And so the idea is there, we can tame a creature. And that's not the idea behind the word tame here. It's the idea of control and subdue. Human being, mankind, has subdued the earth. Animals do not run this planet. Animals do not control what you do in your life. Animals have been subjugated, and depending on what your view is on, on uh, the whole, uh, you know, what animals are for, you know, whether you think you should eat them or not, um, they've been subdued. Even if you don't think you should eat them, you don't think they should rule your life. And that's James's point here. James is saying, look, the entire creation has been subdued by man, but there's one part of creation that has not been subdued, and it's man. It's man. How do you know that man has not submitted himself to God? And James's answer is, look at what comes out of his life. Look at the damage that is done by one human being to another human being. Look at what comes out of his life. And we're going to see that in chapter 4. When we get into chapter 4, James is going to lay out the damage that is coming out of even the life of a believer whose tongue and whose mouth is out of control. And so James's point is this, who is going to subdue the tongue? And the answer is no man can subdue the tongue, and we're going to find out why. So the only way to subdue the tongue is to subdue the man. And the part of man that has to be subdued for the tongue to be subdued is the heart. Because Jesus said, out of the heart, what? The mouth speaks. So when you look at James chapter 3, it's not just about 
learning enough self-discipline so that you don't say everything that comes to your mouth the minute it comes to your mouth. I mean, that, it needs to start there, right? I mean, we can't just like open our mouth and damage other people with our words. We need to be thoughtful about how we communicate. But if that's all we do with James chapter 3, we've missed the big idea that James is putting out there. James is doing a whole lot more than just telling you, be careful how you use your tongue. Don't use it in cutting ways. Don't be critical. Don't be caustic. Think about the damage that it can do. All of that's true, but James is saying much more than that. He is saying that your life has a mission, and that mission is going to be advanced not just by what comes out of your mouth, but by everything that comes out of your life. And if you're going to control your life, you're going to need someone to control your heart. And the evidence that your heart has been controlled by God is what comes out of your mouth. Okay, does that make sense? That's the flow of the passage. And so with that in mind, I want to come back now and I want to make three points this morning from chapter 3. And there's a lot we could say, but let me just, let me just lay out three big ideas and, and then make some applications to our life. Based on what James is saying and the big idea that he's driving at, here's the first thing. James wants us to know our communication is the test of spiritual maturity. Our communication is the test of spiritual maturity. He says this, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. He's setting you up for something that's going to show up later in the chapter. Look at verse 13. He has a question. Where is the wise man? Who is the wise and understanding? So in your mind, you need to draw a line between chapter 3, verse 1, and chapter 3, verse 13. And he's not just talking about someone who stands up like I do to preach and teach God's word. Or in our next hour, we're going to have our equip classes and they're going to be men and women who are going to stand up and open up God's word and they're going to communicate different things from God's word to you, right? So yes, those people are included, but the idea here is that the teacher in chapter 3 verse 1 is the wise man in chapter 3, verse 13. And the idea here is this. If you claim to be spiritually mature, if you claim to have uh, an understanding of the Christian life, if, if you claim to be at a place where other people should listen to you about your faith or about what you think about your faith, James says that there is an acid test of spiritual maturity. There's an acid test of this. When somebody comes along and starts to tell you about the faith and what you should think or about some aspect of the Christian life and what you should think, there's an acid test that is going to reveal their spiritual maturity. Now, let me stop for just a minute and make make sure we understand this. Spiritual maturity is not just a function of time. Sometimes we think that because a person has been a Christian for many, many years, they are automatically spiritually mature. And James is about to explode that thinking. 
He's not talking about a person who, by virtue of the fact that they've been saved for a long, 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 long time, is spiritually mature. It's also not just a function of what you know. We already saw back in chapter 2 that you can have the right beliefs about God And James is going to say there's somebody else who has all of those same right beliefs and you you are in their category when you are not living those beliefs out in your life. And he's actually going to say even the demons believe what you believe. Remember that in chapter 2? So spiritual maturity is not the product of you being a Christian for a long, long time and it's not even the product of what you know. Although the longer you've been a Christian and the more you know about the Christian faith, should actually grow you spiritually. But James is wanting you to understand that just because you've been a Christian for a long time, even decades, and just because you think you know a lot of doctrine doesn't make you spiritually mature. It doesn't make you wise. So how do you know a wise person? How do you know when a person is wise? And in the last part of the chapter, James is going to say, a wise person is a person whose life is submitted to and governed by and shaped by a wisdom that comes from above. And there is another kind of wisdom. There's a wisdom that comes from below. And James is actually going to be describing in the first part of the chapter a person whose life is, And its effects are showing you that they are being shaped by the wrong kind of wisdom. James says there's an acid test of spiritual maturity, and it's this. See what comes out of a person's communication. Now, he's using the word tongue here, and we immediately run to our verbal communication. But he's using that because in the first century, very few people knew how to read And very few people knew how to write. So the primary way of communication was what? It was verbal. But in our day and age, we have a lot of ways to communicate. We communicate verbally. We communicate non-verbally. We communicate with our fingers. We communicate in all kinds of ways. And so when James is talking about the tongue, it would be a grave mistake for us to limit what he has to say just to what comes out of our mouth. He's talking about our communication in general. So here's the first thing I want to ask you. When you, commu- when you look at your communication over a long period of time, What is the flavor of that communication like? What is it marked by? Is it a flavor that smells of grace? Is it even when you have to say a hard thing? I mean, sometimes we have to say hard things. But when you have to say a hard thing, is it a a communication that is flavored by grace? Is it a communication that is flavored by the Spirit? Is it a communication that is marked by the things that we see down in verse 17? Is it pure? Is it peaceable? Is it gentle? Is it open to reason? Is it full of mercy? Do good fruits come out of that communication? Is it impartial? Are there no hidden agendas behind your communication? 
That's where James is going with this. As you live in the kingdoms of the world, think about how people whose life is shaped by wisdom from below communicate. Think about why they communicate and what their objectives are in their communication. And James says, now, when you communicate in those kingdoms, your communication needs to be flavored by a completely different kind of wisdom, wisdom from above. And the way you communicate is the acid test of your spirituality. You you ever heard of the word acid test? You ever wondered where that phrase comes from? I looked that up this week. I was interested in that because I I thought about that. I said, there's an acid test. I don't know why they came to mind, but it did. And I thought, you know, somebody came up with the idea of acid test, and I'm going to find out. So I did a little searching, and I found out that the idea of acid test actually came in 1849 in California. Can any of you remember what was going on in 1849 in the state of California? I can't even remember what was going on last year. But can you remember what was going on back in 1849? Everybody knows, right? It was the very famous California gold rush. And everybody uprooted from the East Coast and made their way as quickly as possible to the West Coast because they knew if they could just get to California, there was just gold lying everywhere. And they could just pick it up and they would become unbelievably wealthy. And so they would would get there and they would walk around and they would pan for gold in the rivers. Some of them would dig up gold in the the mountains. And and there there, there was something unusual that was laying around on the ground that looked a lot like gold. It was called iron pyrite. You know it as what? Fool's gold. And so if you filled up your little treasure sack with fool's gold and you went down into the big city and you showed up at the assayer's office and you asked him to cash out your gold and you dumped all of that iron pyrite on his table, he would look at you and he would say, there is no worth to this. So before you filled up your bag with iron pyrite, you needed to test to see whether or not what you were about to put in your bag was real gold or fool's gold. And so there were two ways to test it. Gold is soft. It's malleable, right? Or malleable. And so you would pick up a piece of gold or what you thought was a piece of gold. And one way to test it was you could bite it. And if it was soft, your teeth would sort of make an indentation in that gold. But the problem was, if it was iron pyrite, what would happen to your tooth? it would shatter or it would break or it would hurt. So you pretty soon, you know, after you're missing a couple of teeth, you decide, I got to have a better way to do this. And so you could take nitric acid and if you dropped fool's gold into nitric acid, it would instantly dissolve. And so these gold miners developed an acid test to see whether what they were putting in their bag was genuine or not. And here's what James is saying. He is saying there is an acid test that you can use to see whether a person is truly mature or not, truly wise or not. And and the acid test is look at what happens when they communicate. Look at their communication. Have you ever gotten a letter from somebody? You know, in my life, I've gotten a lot of letters, and some of them are really nice. Hey, pastor, we love you. 
It's so nice that you're here at our church and you save those letters, right? But every once in a while, you get a letter. Often it's not signed. <clears throat> you know what I've learned to do with not signed letters? Just drop them in the trash. And I would encourage all of you, if you get an anonymous letter, that's what you do with it. Because the person who wrote that letter doesn't have the courage to tell you what he or she really wants to say and and their communication. Here's what I've noticed about anonymous letters. The communication in those letters is nine times out of ten marked by the wrong kind of wisdom. Marked by the wrong kind of wisdom. And so here James has said, you want an acid test for a person's maturity. Here it is. The acid test is what they do with their mouth. Why? Here's why. Because if you have learned how to control your mouth, you have learned how to control all of the impulses that are coming out of your heart. So so how we communicate becomes the acid test of spiritual maturity. Here's the second big idea. Our communication is the means of great power and is the source of grave danger. Now, James is talking to people who are making certain claims. Claim number one, we are believers. And that's why he talks to them and he says things like this, my brothers. He's acknowledging their claim. So whoever he's writing to is a believer. They are claiming to be spiritual. And that's why in chapter 2, he says, show me your faith with your words or without your words, right? Remember that? He says, show me your faith without your words, and I'm going to show you my faith by my works. So there are people who claim to be believers and who have the appearance of spiritual maturity, but when you get into their life and you get into what's going on around them, all of the things that mark the world, all of the brokenness that marks the world, marks them. And so James says, it is the test of a person's maturity, but it is also the means of great power and the source of grave danger. And so that's what we see in verses 3 through 6. And we noted in verse 5, the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. It has great ability to do things. And James says this, now think about this, how great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. Our tongue is great power and great strength. And in verse 3, he talks about the bit and the horse. And in verse 4, he talks about the rudder and the ship. And we noted as we were reading uh, uh, the flow of this together that what James is doing here is he's helping us to see that in the case of a horse or in the case of a ship, these larger objects are used for an intended purpose because somebody is controlling them. Somebody is controlling that horse and somebody is controlling a ship. Now, how many of you have uh, have had any experience riding horses? Can I see your hands? I mean, how many of you like to ride horses? I grew up in Texas, so I, I got to ride quite a bit and uh, enjoy riding horses, but I learned something about horses. The only kind of horse that I want to ride is a horse that is broken, right? 
Think about that word broken for a minute. In any other context, when you talk about something that is broken, it's something that has lost its what? Its worth or its usefulness. I had this great computer and it broke. Or I had this, you know, wonderful thing in my house and it broke. And so when we use the word broke or brokenness, it generally means that it's depleted of its usefulness. I am flat broke means I have all of my resources are depleted. That object that I I was using is broken. It's not functional. There's something wrong. But when you say a horse is broken, you're actually saying the opposite. You're saying that horse is now what? It's now useful. It's now usable. So James is actually using this illustration because anybody who has had any experience with horses knows that the only kind of horse that, that you want to be around, the only high, kind of horse that is going to accomplish the mission that you have for it, whether it's plowing your field or carrying you or, or pulling your chariot, the only kind of horse that is going to do that is a, is a horse that has been subdued. Now, can I make a point here? The bit is not what subdued the horse. The bit is what controls it. The bit is how you stop it or how you steer it, right? But the bit is not what broke the horse. The bit is only the implement that you use to guide the horse. Somebody broke the horse. Somebody is behind that bit steering the horse. And then he takes another example. He uses a ship and he puts the ship in the middle of a storm. Notice what he says in verse 4. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds. This sort of takes you back to chapter 1 when he talks about a double-minded man and he says he is driven, he's tossed to and fro in the storms of life. Here is a ship and it is in the middle of a massive storm and it stays true to course And the reason it stays true to course is because somebody is guiding the ship by means of its rudder. And so here's James's big point. For you to do the mission that God has called you to do, for you to display a living faith in the little kingdom of the world where God has put you for now, for you to have this wholehearted, single-focused, fully trusting faith and have it make a difference in the lives of other people, somebody is going to have to control your mouth. Because when you control your mouth, you can control the direction and the stability of your life. That's where James is going. Our tongue is the source of great strength and of great power. Let me give you an illustration of this. In 1993, there was a man who stood up in a nation and he opened his mouth and he started talking. And by the time he was done talking, the entire world had been thrust into a global conflict that you and I know as World War II. Six million Jews had been incinerated in the ovens that were set up by that man and by his minions. And you know the name of that man. 
His name is Adolf Hitler. I've met a lot of people in the course of my life, and I've read a lot. And from the time that he stood up to open his mouth until now, I don't know very many people who have named their son after him. His mouth kept a nation enthralled from 1932, end of 1932, beginning of 1933, until 1944. An entire world listened to that man talk. And those words galvanized an entire nation to take actions that were horrific and despicable. In 1940, on a small island, another man stood up and started talking in Parliament. And his name was Winston Churchill. And his words galvanized that little island and the rest of the world to stand up to the words of that dictator. And you and I have freedom today in part because of the effect of the words that Winston Churchill consistently uttered in Parliament and around the world. And I'm saying those illustrations because I want you to understand that when James talks about the power of the tongue and the power of human communication, he's not kidding. It it has the power to move an entire globe. And that's why in verses uh, 5 and 6, James wants you to know that an uncontrolled tongue is a source of grave danger. I mean, here's, here's here's where he's going. I think. So I'm going to give you my opinion. And so you're not obligated to my opinion. When I give you my opinion, I'm going to let you know it's my opinion. So here's my opinion. I think James is going after the idea that that some of his readers might have. I don't know this, but just from reading James enough and, and sort of getting the flow of what I think he's trying to say, I think he's he's addressing something that he anticipates some of his readers are going to say. And it's this. Well, that's just the way I talk. I mean, everything else in my life is good. I, I have a great marriage. I'm, I'm, I'm good. I've got good, uh, good theology. I go to good church. I, I give. I do all these things. But, but this is an area, my tongue is just the way it is. I'm just, that's who I am. And James is saying, that is not a minor thing. When you look at your tongue and you do not submit your tongue to the word of God and the spirit of God and your tongue is set on fire from the very wisdom that is destroying the world, that tongue has great power to do inestimable damage. And so James says, let me give you a third illustration. The tongue is like a bit in a horse's mouth. It's like the rudder on a ship. But the third illustration is this. It is like a fire. See how great a forest, the idea there is behold, take note, pay attention, see how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. In 1871, a very famous cow kicked over a lantern. You remember this cow in the city of Chicago? Now, I don't know, there's all kinds of you know, theories about who, who owned the cow and whether the cow actually kicked the lantern over. But, but it's a great story, right? And it's, it's cool to blame a cow for a fire. So here we go. The Great Chicago Fire of 1871 destroyed 3.5 miles of the city and 17,000 buildings 
and 250 lives. Started in Mrs. O'Leary's barn when Mrs. O'Leary's cow kicked over Mrs. O'Leary's bucket and it landed on Mrs. O'Leary's lantern and it struck a fire in Mrs. O'Leary's barn that raged out of control and 250 lives were lost. How many of you have heard of the Chicago, the great Chicago fire? Yeah? Well, that's, that's most of you. How many of you have heard of the great Pestigo fire? I lived about four hours north of Chicago for a period of time in our life, and we had to drive through a little town called Pestigo. And actually, on the very same day, October 8th, when the great Chicago fire happened, when Mrs. O'Leary's cow kicked over the lantern, on that same day, 200 miles north, another fire started in the town of Pestigo. It had temperatures that reached to more than 2,000 degrees. And during that time, there was a windstorm that came through. And by the time that fire was put out, it had destroyed 12 towns, 1,875 acres of timber, and over 2,000 lives were lost. One spark and a massive fire. And James is saying, your tongue is of fire. He said it's like a bit and it's like a rudder, but he actually changes his language here. And in verse six, he says, your tongue is a fire. It is a fire full of every kind of evil. It fuels, you know, your tongue is fueled by something. And, and, and what, what fuels your tongue, according to James, is every kind of evil. And this is the point Jesus was trying to make in chapter 12, verse 34, when he was talking to a group of Pharisees who were so bothered by the fact that his disciples were eating without washing their hands ritually. You're like, well, you know, I kind of understand. They ought to wash their hands. He's not talking about washing your hands so that you can be clean and not contaminate your food with germs. Like you wash your hands before you sit down for dinner. He's talking about ritual cleansing. He's talking about the ritual purification that a good Jew had to do before they sat down to eat. And here were Jesus' disciples and Jesus himself, and they were eating without any of that ritual purification. And the Pharisees were incensed by this because you are now going to be defiled. And Jesus looks at them and he says, it's not what goes inside a person's mouth that defiles them. It's what comes out of their heart that defiles them. And that's why he talks about out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. You could look at those Pharisees and on on the outside, they looked perfect. They kept the law. They were concerned about ritual purity. They dressed a certain way. They wore a certain kind of garment when they went to the temple. They had a certain appearance when they showed up and they, and they began talking. There was a certain order in which they talked and how they gave respect to one another and what they demanded in terms of their own respect from everybody. And so when you wanted to find the most holy people in Israel and you walked up to an average Israelite and you said, where are the holy people? They would point right to these Pharisees. And they would say, those are the most holy people we know. They are the people that are closest to God. 
And please don't misunderstand me. I, I, I'm not saying that you and I are Pharisees, but sometimes we can become Pharisee-like, can't we? Look at how I dress. Look at what I wear. Look at how I talk. Look at this and look at that. And so when you come and you want to know where the righteous people are and where the holy people are, well, they're right over there. Look at what they wear to church. Look at the way they carry themselves. Look at, look at, look, it's all external. And please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying those things don't matter and I'm not saying those things aren't important. I'm making a different point. We can have all those things and what comes out of our mouth is caustic. What comes out of our mouth is bitter. It's angry. It's destructive. And Jesus says, look, to those Pharisees, there are things that are coming out of your mouth about me and about my disciples and about others. Here's one Pharisee, and he looks over at a publican, and he says, I am so glad I am not like him. Father, I thank you that I'm not like him. You see what's coming out of his mouth? Where did that come from? It came from his heart. There's an arrogance that drove all of that. And that's what Jesus was saying to those Pharisees, and that's what James is saying to his readers and to us. Our tongue is fueled by every kind of evil, and it will defile and stain the whole of our life. Look at verse 3. The tongue is set among our members as the part of our body that stains or defiles the entire body. If you go back to chapter 1, verse 27, James said, let me tell you about pure religion that is acceptable to God. It is unstained. And James is saying, here is something that is staining you. It's what is coming out of your mouth. And if you don't control it, if, you, if it remains untamed, it will destroy the course of your entire life. Whatever sinful impulse, whatever strong desire, whatever lust is in your heart that is driving your communication is going to end up affecting the whole course of your life. And it's not just the fact that what comes out of our mouth is vile. Sometimes what comes out of our mouth sounds remarkably orthodox, but we're saying it for a very bad motive. I'm going to speak this way because I want to be thought well of by this person. Can I give you an illustration of the human heart, what I'm talking about? I used this illustration earlier, so if you've heard this before, please forgive me, but I think it really helps us here. I want you to think of uh, a young man, maybe in his late 20s, early 30s, and he has decided that he wants to be the president of the United States one day. And so he hitches his star and his career to the most powerful person he can think of that will get him there. And he starts talking to that man. And he's very careful about what that man thinks. 
He studies everything he's, read, he's written. He's listened to every speech. He knows everything that man that's important to that man. And all of a sudden, what comes out of his mouth is geared to get that man's approval and that man's attention and to bind him to that man so that that man will advance his career. He makes another decision. One day, when I run for the office of the President of the United States, I've watched presidential elections, and I know that there's going to be an intense scrutiny of my life, so I'm going to pay every dime of taxes that I owe. I'm never going to find myself in a compromising position sexually with another person. I'm going to give lots of money to people that I know have the ability to control a lot of votes. And so when you look at that man and you have no idea why he's doing what he's doing, because he's never told you that he wants to be the president of the United States, when you don't know why he's doing what he's doing, everything that he's doing looks really, really good. I mean, look at that guy. There's no scandal in his life. He pays every dime of taxes. He's so kind to people. He, he gives like crazy. But when you get down in his heart and you start knowing what's really going on there, all of that is being driven by a very worldly desire for power. And Jesus looks at that and says, now that is a worldly man. That is a man whose entire mouth is driven by the world because he's using his mouth to get what he wants. Now, that strikes really close to home, doesn't that, for all of us? And here's the problem. I can't judge your heart, and you can't judge my heart. So at some point, the only way that we're going to be able to judge our own heart is when the Spirit of God controls it. And that's the third thing that I want you to notice, and we'll end with this this morning. Our communication affects the credibility of our life message. The credibility of our communication, or our communication rather, affects the credibility of our life message. James says in verse 9, with it, with our tongue, we bless our Lord and Father. Here's the idea. We we worship. The, the, The word bless there is a worship word. We worship God with our tongue. What have you been doing all morning? As we've been gathered together, we've been singing, we've been praying together. We bless God. We thank God. You got up this morning and you had breakfast and you thanked God for the food. You went to bed last night and and I hope you spent some time as you were drifting off to sleep, thanking God for the day. We use our heart and our mouth to bless God. And then we get up the next morning and what do we do? We use the same mouth. And instead of blessing our fellow man, we curse him. And the word curse there is not that we say a bad word at him, it's that, it's that we denigrate him. And every one of James's readers would have immediately got the idea when, when James says, now there's a big problem when you bless God with your mouth and then you turn around and you curse people who are made in the likeness of God. In James's day... Every town in the Roman Empire had an image of Caesar in the town. You can see this in ancient Egypt. Every every town in ancient Egypt had an image of the Pharaoh in that town. 
And so if you lived anywhere in the Roman Empire and, and, and James was writing you this letter, you would immediately remember, oh, there's an image of Caesar and it's located in this part of our town. And when you went and cursed that image, who were you really cursing? You were really cursing Caesar who lived in Rome. If you spoke in some kind of deprecating way of that image or you were disrespectful to that image or you spat on that image or you did something to deface the image, everybody knew that it wasn't just the stone that you were addressing. When you cursed or defaced or defamed the image of Caesar in your town, you were really doing the same thing to Caesar who lived in Rome. And here's James's point. God has an image. God made an image of himself. That's why he told you not to make any of him because he's already made one. He's made an image of himself and he's filled up the earth with image bearers. And when you curse the image of God, it's the same thing as what? Cursing God. When you, in, when you injure or harm one of God's image bearers, that in essence is what you do. That's why Jesus was able to say to people, when you give a cup of cold water to an image bearer, it's like giving a cup of cold water to me. And when you stand before me on the judgment day, I'm going to reward you as though you had given it to me. And then he looks at other people and said, and you wouldn't do that, so I'm also going to treat you as though you wouldn't have given it to me. That's the idea here. How we use our tongue with one another is really has impact on our relationship to God in whose image they are. And then James says in verse 10, we use our mouth to bless and to curse. These things must not be. He said, my brethren, these things ought not to be this way. Can a fountain, a spring, send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree produce olives or a vine produce figs? And then he closes it out this way, nor can salt water produce fresh. And he comes right back to the beginning and he says this, if you are going to live out a living faith in a credible way, it is going to have to come out of a heart that is subdued to God. God is going to have to control your heart because he's already said, hasn't he, that no man, verse 8, no man can tame the tongue. We can tame anything else. We can subdue everything else on the planet, but we cannot subdue our own hearts. God has to subdue our hearts. So how does he do that? You say, Pastor, I just, I need God to subdue my heart. I, I, my communication, what comes out of my mouth is horrible. It's hurtful. It's hurt people. It doesn't reflect the grace of the gospel. It doesn't reflect and bring glory to God. My, my mouth is out of control. How do I control my mouth? And James says, I already answered that question for you. So let me take you back as we close. Here's what James says. Chapter 1, verse 19. Be quick to hear. Be quick to receive what God is saying to you this morning. 
I mean, I'm not unaware that this message is difficult for some of us to hear because our lives are marked by, by the chaos of an out-of-control tongue. Our marriages have been impacted by it. Our kids have felt the brunt of it. The way we talk to one another when we don't like something, the opinions we express and how we express them to one another. I am not unaware that in a group this size, we all have a place in our life where the Spirit of God is probably directing this message, myself included. And James's advice is this, be quick to hear. Be quick to hear. Be slow to what? To speak. How many children have been alienated from the Lord because of the way they have been treated by an angry parent? How many relationships have been irreparably broken because of the way you stood on your opinion and insisted on that opinion? Or the way you communicated a correction to somebody else? I'm not talking just in this body. I'm talking in the larger course of our life where you were so concerned about some external thing that you died on that hill and all of the relationships around you were impacted by that. And James says, now, if you really want God to control your heart, here's where it starts. You've got to be quick to hear. What am I supposed to be quick to hear? James says, God gave you a good and perfect gift from above, and that good and perfect gift is the word of truth that is implanted in your heart. So be quick to hear and slow to speak. And in verse 21 of chapter 1, he says, remove all filth and wickedness. And so maybe there are things that you and I need to go back to in our life and say, God, if I'm really wanting you to control my life, I've got to clear out. I've got to remove things that have happened because of my out-of-control tongue. And there's a word for that. It's called repent. James says you've got to receive and hear the word of God and and then you've you've got to humbly submit to the word that's implanted in your heart because that's the word that is able to save your soul. And that's why in verse 22 he says you need to resolve to be a doer of this word and not just a hearer only. I wonder if you'd bow your heads with me very quietly. And I wonder for just a moment if you would just say to the Lord, Lord, I have tried my entire life to control my mouth. And for the first time, however difficult it is to hear, I'm beginning to realize that I will never control my mouth until you control my heart. And so God, I want to ask you to forgive me for a heart that's been arrogant or for a heart that's been hard or for a heart that's been bitter. And I want to remove all of that. I want you to wash all of that away. I'm so thankful that mercy triumphs over judgment. And then, Lord, I want to receive what you've said this morning in James 3 submissively and meekly and graciously, and I want to thank you for caring enough to move James to write a letter to me about my tongue. 
And I, Lord, want your help to use my tongue as a spring pouring out grace and kindness and gratitude for the gospel and the mercy that you've extended to me. Lord, would you help me to do that? Father, I know that I've prayed that this morning. I have a feeling that many others have joined me in that prayer. Lord, we are unable to control our heart. But Lord, you've given us a new heart and you have given us a spirit that comes from you that can control and direct not just what comes out of our mouth, but what comes out of our heart. Lord, may we be a church full of people, imperfect as we are. James says we all stumble in many ways. And we're, we're, we acknowledge that. Lord, we know we're going to stumble. But Lord, what, may we be a church whose communication with one another is marked by grace. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.